So if you've just been with us a couple weeks, what we typically do here at Christ Community Church is preach through books of the Bible. And uh, the last couple weeks have been a little bit different. Two weeks ago, we preached on uh, Hope Restored for Easter. We talked about how after Jesus raised from the dead, he went and restored his friend Peter, who failed him pretty significantly on uh, three occasions in one night, and uh, he went and restored him back to fullness and right relationship. And, and then last week, we talked about what does it look like to restore hope in our community. But today, we find ourselves back in our series in the Gospel of Mark. We are talking about how Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man, Jesus is the son. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, open with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Um, I am a human being, just like you. I have not always been a follower of Jesus. Jesus saved me when I was 17. I still struggle with temptation, and at times I still struggle with sin. Uh, I, I used to travel and speak full time which meant I drove a lot. And one day I was driving out to Angleton, Texas. You, you familiar with Angleton? Okay, about four of you are. But that's actually in Texas, and it's actually not that far away. But I was driving down to Angleton, Texas, and I, I thought I was keeping up with traffic, going a safe and prudent speed above the speed limit. And I was running a little behind, just to be forthright and honest with you. And so I was trying to make up some time, and all of a sudden I see a state trooper behind me. And then his lights go on. And I pull over. And he said, sir, uh, where are you going in such a hurry? Man, I wanted to lie. I said, sir, I said, uh, I'm going to a youth group for their Wednesday night worship gathering uh, to preach to them about Jesus. And he said, well, what is the topic of your sermon going to be? And I said, sir, it's kind of up to you. <laughs> it will either be a sermon on justice or a sermon on mercy. <laughs> so what I will tell you, I am embarrassed and I am humbled that I'm now going to be even later to the event and I have to explain at least to the youth pastor what happened. He said, we need to slow down. I said, yes, sir. He said, go preach on mercy. <laughs> have a nice day. So I prayed blessings over that guy. I struggle with sin just like you. I break rules, I break laws, I offend God, I think thoughts that aren't honoring to God, I do things that are not pleasing to him. I'm a man before you who is aware of my need for a savior, and at times I forget and I start reading my own PR. I enter into my own spin zone for who I am. And so as I come bringing a sermon about sin, I do pray it brings conviction but I pray that conviction will then spark us to look up to the one who took the punishment we deserve on the cross. And so my heart is to evoke worship, not condemnation. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 50. The topic of my sermon is chopping off your hand, chopping off your feet, and scooping out your eyes for God's glory. So it might be good for us to talk about hyperbole first. Because the invitation won't be with knives and spoons, but one with the Savior. Hyperbole is just the exaggerated statement or claims. They're not meant to be taken literally, but they're meant to emphasize a point. One of the common hyperboles in our home is, that makes me want to light myself on fire. While I did struggle with pyrotechnia when I was a child, pyrotechnology, I don't know what you're supposed to call it, but 
I liked playing with fire. I once set a matchbook on fire and set my finger on fire and burned it, and that was a fun story to explain to my parents who were very strict about not playing with fire in the house. Hyperbole, though, is, is, is important because the message is substantial. And words are a gift. They're symbols used to emphasize and describe and bring meaning to and breathe life into things. And so we pick up with Jesus as he has been talking about what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God, what God values, what God finds important, and therefore what we as kingdom dwellers should value and find important. And he begins in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, little ones he's referring to, as was described by my friend Jason a few weeks ago in the previous passages, he used a child as an example, but it wasn't just contained to children. The little ones that Jesus is referring to are those whom can be affected by sin because their faith is weak and because of sin, whether either encouraged or done to them, it causes them to doubt the goodness of God and the truth of God's good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says it would be better in comparison for causing one to sin, to not believe in God, to disown God, it would be better then for a person to tie a millstone around their neck. Now, there are two types of millstones that they are using as imagery here. The first type are ones that the, the servant women would use, hand stones, millstones, to grind wheat. And so, uh, obviously, that's not that threatening. It might be a little heavy, but it sounds like when I was trying to become a lifeguard when I was 16, which is ironic in many ways, if you think about 16-year-olds saving lives... And if you're like, well, I'm 16, I could save your life. That's because you don't know what you don't know yet. You just don't know. And I remember having to tread water. I've never been good at treading water. And they give you a brick. And they say, all right, tread water for 10 minutes. Apparently, you can do these scissor things or like scooper or like, like mixer things to keep you floating or whatever. I can't do that. I'm an expert sinker or scissor kicker. And I was just sinking and nearly dying. I almost needed to be rescued by the ones in whom I was being trained to rescue. I even think I heard one kid swimming by saying, is that guy okay? Well, I'm training to save their lives. And then I passed. And I became a lifeguard. I don't get it. I still to this day don't get it. But they're not talking about the little millstone. They're talking about there were these huge donkey-driven stones that would be on top of each other and riveted out and pushed by the power of donkeys to grind large amounts of grain at a time. And he says it's better for one to have this ginormous stone that had a hole in the middle wrapped around the neck and then tossed into the ocean and sunk and horribly drowned to the bottom than to cause another to disbelieve Jesus. It's better for them. Sometimes we're bored at home. We talk about, would you rather be burned alive or drowned? My vote is neither. Every time I look for the third option, no. 
Either way, it's, it's better to submerge and to go away. That, that's, as you compare that, better off. But I think before we go any farther, we have to have a working definition for what is sin. Our friend Wayne Grudem, there's a big book on the back table, and then a smaller book on the back table by our friend Wayne. In his book, Systematic Theology, he, he defines it as this, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. I think most people believe that sin is merely doing wrong things. But sin is so much, according to the Bible, so much more than that. Sin is not only doing bad things, it's also not doing the good things. So there's sins of commission, meaning we do things that are against the moral law of God, and then there's sins of omission, where we do not do what God has ordained and commissioned and commanded us to do. And so that's sin of action or in of action, but beyond that, it's also one of attitude. How do we think and believe about God? How do we therefore think and believe about others? How do we then respond to who God says he is as believers? How does that affect us when we realize we're not thinking the way that God, according to his word, is calling us to think? But then also we have to understand the issue of sin nature. Because of sin of our first father and our first mother, Adam and Eve, sin affects our nature. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that's where Paul says, for, for while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. So it wasn't this act of working out to be better behaved so that then we are not sinning so that Jesus will find us acceptable, therefore then make us right with God. It's because we cannot work to make ourselves right with God. God has done what we cannot do through his son, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, the weight and gravity of sin is heavy and consequential. And the way you affect others with your life, with your thoughts, by your nature, has dire consequences. And so the first thing I want to draw from this passage is that the souls of others matter. And I know we know that, but, but, but we need to be more responsible, not just before ourselves and God, but aware of those around us. And I'm not saying or advocating that we are responsible for the salvation of the souls of others only on our own. There's only one person that can save sinners, and his name is Jesus. However, our sin has effect on others. There's consequences. Consequences are something happens as a result of something else. And so men, when you're looking at pornography and you're sinning against God, you're sinning against your wife, you're sinning against the woman on the screen, you're sinning against your own soul, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and then your wife finds out or you confess and she feels not good enough, not lovely enough, not satisfying enough, you are therefore causing your wife to sin because she's believing the lies of Satan rather than what God sees in her. The beauty of women are found not in their outward exterior appearance, but by their heart for God. You're not just hurting her, you're leading her towards sin. 
Ladies, when you devalue your husband or demean your husband or speak to him as if he's an idiot, even if he might be acting like one in the moment, it happens. And he responds with anger or rage or defensiveness. Perhaps your anger or unforgiveness or rage will cause him to sin. Paul gives a command in Ephesians to not, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't be unable to please ever. You see, I think in the church we're so much about your personal walk with Jesus and you and your relationship with God that we don't take responsibility for those around us and realize that our sin has corporate effect, not just isolated effect, not just your marriage effect, but your sin affects the community of believers. Your sin says something about the nature of God. Your sin says something about who you say Jesus is. And in order to rightly begin to think about when we struggle with sin because we do, we have to start asking better questions. We have to stop asking just, will this make me happy, to will this honor Jesus? We have to stop asking, will this make me happy, or how will this affect others? Parents, you're preaching something about Jesus every day with your kids, every day with your neighbors. And many of us are preaching the gospel of good grades or the gospel of success or the gospel of sports or the gospel of beauty or the gospel of vanity. We're preaching these false gospels that then cause our children to sin. And instead of owning it and correcting and repenting, changing our thinking, changing our direction, we continue on in it and cover it and cover up. And so the real plea here isn't that, hey, I figured it out and you haven't. The, the reality here is let's mature and grow in self-awareness and responsibility of how we are affecting those around us. Because Jesus is very clear. We have responsibility We have responsibility to either be pointing people to Jesus or we're pointing them away. And without a glorious Savior, there is grave consequence for us all. The last verse in Romans chapter 1 is one of the scariest verses for believers, I would say. See, people love to fight about Romans 1 as Paul uses an argument from nature as an example of how people have gone away from God's creative intent for relationships. And we love to fight that part, but the scarier part to me is that he goes then from there is after he's turned them over and he's turned them over, as he's turning sinners over who will not repent, who will not turn to Christ, who will not value the gospel, as they continue on, he says this in verse 32, which I think most of us miss. He says, though they know God's righteous degree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Even though they know it's against God's ways, even though they know it's against God's law and his character and his person, not only do they participate in the same things, 
But it, it literally, it's they give hearty approval to others. And the irony is that we do that in the name of love. We want people to feel loved by us. We want people to feel accepted by us. We don't want people to dislike us. But the very act that we are doing, calling it love, is in fact the definition of hatred. If we know that certain activities and thoughts and natures, if kept in perpetuity, without repentance or change of direction or confession or reliance on Christ, leads to death, eternal death, yet we go on not only doing those things ourselves, but encouraging others in that same sin, we're not acting in love, we're acting as haters. And before you start pointing out other people who are doing that, look at your own heart. Jesus continuing this narrative of how heavy sin is. He goes on to say, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two, with two hands. Or, or, excuse me, it's better for you to, to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. First question I have for us to think through is, do we want what is better? Do we want what is better, really, for ourselves, for our families, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our enemies? Obviously, he's not advising people to mutilate their bodies, but he's letting them know what is better. Isn't it amazing how much, as Christians, we strive to preserve and save this life when we say we believe that we have the promise of eternal life? I struggle to be where Paul is in Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I, I, there are days I feel that, and then I get out of bed and start my day. But there is an aspiration that speaks to the way that we value Jesus. How do we value him? That's what we're really looking at here is valuation. Are we more valuing of our temporal pleasures than we are of the eternal reward that we have in Christ? Are we more aware and longing for the things that immediately make us better? Or are we longing for the pleasure of knowing and intimacy with Christ? Are we working so hard to endeavor to make our lives where we need nothing from no one? Or are we at a place where we're desperate for the person of Christ? Cut it off. Cut it off. Tear it out. 
it's better. It's better to be crippled. It's better to be lame. It's better to be one-eyed than to go to hell. Now, people don't like talking about hell. They diminish hell. They dismiss it. They say, don't talk about it because non-believers won't like it. That's not loving. If anyone does not know Jesus and dies, they will go to hell for eternity. Jesus' words, not mine. And he talks about it a lot. He talks about it a lot because he wants us to understand the gravity of what's at stake here. He wants us to understand that his death on the cross isn't just some rebel being shut up and shut down by people who disagree, but a savior who came to illustrate what it is to proclaim truth, to love sinners, to die a brutal death. And his brutality, the physical brutality that he endured wasn't just so that we would feel bad for ourselves, but that we would have a vivid illustration of the gravity and horrific nature of sin. And until we begin to lean into and understand the gravity of sin, we will never appreciate the sacrifice of our Savior. It'll be devalued and undermined. We won't care that his fame is at stake in how we as image bearers and name carriers live our lives. We just will care about ourselves and our kingdom and not his own. There's an old Puritan phrase called mortification that literally means to put to death. To put to death sin. To put it to, so, so to, to think clearly about that. I'm pretty merciful and gracious, but when a man continuously is struggling with specific media-driven sin, I tell him to buy an old flip phone if he needs to communicate. It's better to be inconvenienced than unrepentant. Or get another job. We're unwilling. Our pride tells us we'll just try harder. And we'll do things in place. Look, you can have all the filters or all the budgets or all these other things, but if your heart isn't in line with God, even if you're well-behaved, you don't know him. If you don't have your hope only in Jesus, not your behavior, you don't know him. See, I think there's several different types of personalities represented in this room. Some of you are saying, okay, how do I need to get better and try harder for God? How do I need to get these things out so I can earn with God? No, 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 that's the wrong question. Because Jesus has made you right already, how do you need to respond? What needs to go? What is preventing you from enjoying this peace that surpasses understanding? What sin are you loving so much and believing that that is your rescuer when the rescuer has proven his love for you? What are you unwilling to put to death? Because you're not yet convinced that Christ was put to death for it. When we have a low view of sin, we have a low view of our Savior. Now I want to caution us, I don't want us to become sin police. That's what Pharisees were. They were so concerned about outward behavior and outward appearances that they were 
livid when Jesus spoke about the state of your heart. I did everything you told me to. I'm following all the rules. I'm doing all the right things. I don't understand what's going on. The issue isn't your behavior. Your behavior is just an overflow, a symptom of your beliefs. What's going on is that there are heart issues where your heart isn't valuing rightly the person and nature of God and isn't leaning into growing into that more and is wrongly aligned with him. And that plays itself out in many different ways. How we view money, how we view time, how we view pleasure, how we view everything. And how we live, either in greed or generosity. If you're always arguing for your own generosity, then maybe you need to stop and look to the cross again. We've got room to grow. I'm not just talking about financially. When Paul says, I die daily in 1 Corinthians, he's not just talking about that he's facing death, he's saying that I'm mortifying my flesh. I want more of Jesus. I want more of him. He's infinite, and fortunately, there's more of Jesus to have. He goes on to verses 49 through 50 in Mark 9. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. When I first read this, I didn't know what the heck it meant, just to be honest with you. I mean, I like salt. But I, I literally, I mean, I still remember it was like reading through the Bible for the first time as a new believer. Chop your arm off, pluck out your eye, cut off your feet, it's better. And I wasn't the most uh, well-versed in English yet. So I just refused to do those things, thank God. Because I would, I would be on a cart and you'd have to roll me in here with no extremities. So... Any passage that isn't specifically clear gives room for what's called a commentator war. People who comment on the scriptures to have tons of different views. And so I sat through that war and just try to learn. And here's the best thing I've got. Jesus pulling from illustrations from the Old Testament of the sacrificial system, of the testing or refining that takes place. That salt has not only a seasoning purpose, but also a preserving purpose, especially in that day and age. It was used to preserve or to also season. But ultimately, as we study this, we can come to the understanding that Jesus was saying all will endure fire. And so for the believer, fire manifests itself through struggles and through suffering and through hard times and through illnesses and through deaths there's, there's suffering that takes place and that the salt is preserving and amplifying and leveraging opportunity to glorify that which is doing the refining. But for the unbeliever, there's a preparation for the final consummation of the eternal torment in hell that never ends. It's conscious and aware and ongoing. Everything good is not there. It's removed. And so Jesus is saying we will all face these things, but the implication and application must keep going. So for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, if it is not serving as its intended purpose, it will be destroyed. How will you make it salty again? You can't. And so his listeners, his disciples, and those listening have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
One of the fruits of salvation is a consideration of and a desire for peace with others. Your thoughtful love, your mindful love, how does my issue with this person communicate the truths about who Jesus is? How does reconciliation communicate the truths of the Bible? How does my leaning into the forgiveness that Christ given me then compel me then to respond, not as this world would advise, but rather as one who has been completely forgiven? Last week we talked about how Jesus looked out amongst the people that he was serving with his disciples in Matthew chapter 9. And it said he he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said, therefore, respond is don't go immediately mobilize, but stop and pray. And I challenged us as a church to shut out some of the noise and to take one week off from our addiction to the bad news, or news, however you want to call it, I know some of you did it, and some of you struggled with it, and some of you cheated a little bit. I did check one time to make sure we weren't at war yet. But ultimately, that time of praying, God, make me aware of those around me who do not yet know you. Make me aware of those that I'm causing to sin because of my sin towards them. God, make me aware of those who are in sin that I can lovingly go and walk with. God, help me to see areas that I am displeasing you or dishonoring you or hurting somebody else. Help me to see, and he's been faithful because I'm harassed and helpless until I met my shepherd. And when I start believing that it's up to me to do things and make things happen, that harasses me. You ever felt that? We have to agree with our sister Carrie Underwood. Jesus, take the wheel. Just make sure you're awake. You Magnolia half people are like, yes, amen. Woo. Harry. Prophetess. All right. You Woodlands people are like, who? Which I love about our church. Friends, until we understand our profound need for Jesus ourselves, we won't be moved by compassion for others to know him. We might have obligation. We might be able to be guilted of mobilization, but we won't have a deep burning passion for our neighbors and our family and our friends to know Jesus. And not just know Jesus so it changes their behavior, but to know Jesus so that they are set free. Ultimately, the way that we deal with our own sin, the sins committed against us and the sins of others, reveals what we believe about Jesus and his word. So I have an application question to hopefully help you or haunt you this week. I want you to sit and ponder, what is my natural reaction to sin? The sin of others, but even more importantly, my own. Maybe it's to ignore your sin. You just, you're not aware, You, you just, or don't pay attention to it. You presume upon the mercies of God and hold so wrongly to the doctrine of salvation that you believe that since you're forgiven, you can live however you want. Or maybe you don't ignore it, you dismiss it. 
Or another way to put it is you make excuses for it that justify then your sinful attitudes, your sinful thoughts, and your sinful nature. Or maybe you judge. When you're confronted with your own sin, you bring harsh judgment either on yourself or it triggers your judgment of someone else. Yeah, I might do that, but you do this. Well, I wouldn't do that if you didn't do blank. Or if you would only, then I wouldn't. That's judging. Listen, you are responsible for your sin even if you're sinning in response to sins committed against you. Let me say that again. You are responsible before a holy God for your sin you commit or omit even if it's in response to sins committed against you. Now, I don't want to say that lightly or dismiss profound grief and pain and shame that comes with sins that are done against us. But one of the ways towards freedom in Christ is owning that which is ours and trusting him to deal with that which is of others. Some of you, you go prideful in a different direction. So it's not ignoring or dismissing or judging. That's prideful. But some of us, we go towards pride in a different direction, that of guilt or shame. Now, some guilt is appropriate because guilt is simply, man, I've blown it, I've done this wrong. But if you're so focused on all the guilt that you're doing, all the things you're doing wrong, or all the things that your friends or family or strangers are doing wrong, and you're not aware of your own guilt before God, then you're missing it. And I know so many people that their pride manifests in the shame they feel that because they've done bad or because they've failed, that therefore that speaks to the very character. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not the good news. The good news isn't that it's up to you to make yourself good or right with God. The good news is that God has already done that through his son Jesus. And so shame, and just to be forthright with you, shame is a blanket I wear because my pride often goes towards negative things about myself. Don't get me wrong, I I can swing on the seesaw the other direction thinking I'm really awesome too. My wife knows. She's not sure which which Casey show you're going to show up to sometimes. Sometimes I'm amazing, praise me. Or I'm a failure, grieve for me. Where's the gospel? What we're saying is that the wounds of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ isn't enough when we dwell in that place. Proper guilt leaves us too compassion because of our Savior. So what is your natural reaction to sin? Have you grown in your faith where the first thing you think when you see sinful behavior is, I'm concerned for them because of what that communicates about God and how that affects their fellowship with God. And by God's grace, sometimes that is mine. Before I just get angry or I judge or I dismiss I I feel compassion, and the gravity of sin stops me at times. I'm guilty of these other responses, but one way to know that you're beginning to mature is that you don't make sweeping statements about people and who they are and how they are because of their behavior, but rather you come alongside saying, Christ needs to redeem that habit. Christ needs to redeem those beliefs. Christ needs to redeem and inform who they believe they are. 
That is how we honor God and the way we react to sin. And ultimately, is your natural reaction to sin the gospel? That God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that through him we might become the righteousness of God, that through the death and resurrection of King Jesus we might be forgiven. Is your hope compelled to how does the gospel apply and transform and fix this? It's not mine always. And I'm a master of the divine. You should laugh. Just because I have a master of divinity doesn't mean I'm, I'm nailing this. What it does mean, though, is that as I see sin, my own and others, I'm increasingly more aware of my need for Jesus as well as theirs. And so I can have conversations about dealing with poverty or aggressive people of other faiths or dealing with racist issues with a purpose and goal of compassion and gospel because what's at stake ultimately is God's glory. And fortunately, he won't give it over to someone else. He'll be glorified in his justice and he'll be glorified in his mercy. But as long as it extends to us, as Jesus says here, endeavor then to live at peace with others. Because without Jesus, we're deserving of the same thing. And here's the deal, church. I want us to be aware of our sin. And I want us to be aware of the sin of others, but I want our response to mature. I want my response to mature. Sometimes people hurt our feelings and it hurts. Sometimes they make us angry and it's hard. But ultimately, we all have a very clear shared need. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need Jesus. Jesus was salted by fire so that we can be free and forgiven of the deep consequences of sin. He endured that punishment. He endured that wrath so that we might be liberated to not be identified by the sins committed to us or sins we've committed, but to be identified by the salted Savior who took on death, endured the wrath of hell, and persevered to the point of resurrection so that through him we can stand non-condemned, forgiven, and free. We can stand not only forgiven, but as forgivers. We can stand as those who were identified by sin, but now are identified and resurrected with our King Jesus. That's our hope for your joy to be restored. That's our hope for your marriage to be restored. That's our hope for your addictions to be set free. Our hope is in the life and the death and the resurrection of our King Jesus who took on the wrath of God so that we might get the forgiveness of God. And that, my friends, is wonderful news. It's so wonderful news. We must understand that sin is a destructive force that kills us, that can only be overcome by the power of the gospel, the life, the death, death the resurrection of Jesus. And some of you here this morning are identified by those deserving of this punishment, and you've never cried out to Jesus to rescue you or save you. Some of you are in love with your sin more than your Savior. 
And some of you, Jesus is calling home today. He's calling you to confess, to agree with God, to hope in Jesus, to be rescued by him so you might be restored, renewed, and used. If you're like, I, I don't know Jesus that way, the good news is you can. The good news is if that desires in you to know that forgiveness, that forgiveness, that cleansing, that refining, that acceptance from an almighty God who made you, who knows you better than anyone else, then you can be forgiven. Will you cry out to God? Will you say, God, I have failed you. I have gone against you. I have sinned. I have made excuses about my sin. Save me. Jesus, save me, and he will. If that desire is in you, that's God at work. He will. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, and you say, I'm more consumed by my definition and identity and sin than I am in my identity and my Savior. Then repent. Change your direction. Change your thinking and return to Christ. Allow his blood to cover your sin. Allow his shame to then apply so that you might experience his glory. Christ Jesus is our only hope for the destructive power of sin. But he is greater. He is good. Let's pray.